This week on the Men at the Movies podcast, we are expanding our palette with Somewhere in Time. We explore the longing to be known. We look at our pursuit of beauty and the extreme lengths we'll go to to pursue it. And we also ask ourselves about the story we are living in. While we say we know that God can make the impossible possible, how much impossible do we really think he can make possible? Join us as we discover our stories in this movie. The movies and stories we love are gateways to see ourselves and God in new ways. Every great story borrows its power from a larger story, the story that's written on our hearts and woven into the fabric of our very being. Hello and welcome to the Men at the Movies podcast. My name is Paul McDonald and joining me from Colorado uh, is Alan Arnold. How are you doing, man? Hey, Paul. I am doing awesome. Good to see you. Good to talk to you today. Well, welcome back to the podcast. This isn't Walter Mitty we're talking about today. We're, we're going with a whole different story. I'm really excited to have you on and excited to, to discover this movie. Yes, it's one of my all-time favorites. And I think when I recommended it to you, it was probably a little <laughs> bit of a curveball. Right, because we were, we were planning on doing Ratatouille. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, you said, hey, can I pivot to somewhere in time? And I said, I've never heard of it, but I'll look it up and we can absolutely do that. <laughs> so, and I'm sure we're going to do Ratatouille at some point for all of you yes, Ratatouille so. fans. But why did, why the pivot? Why did you pick this movie? Why do you love this movie? Well, so yeah, this movie came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. It stars Christopher Reeve, who played Superman in the Superman movies that were kind of iconic in the late seventies and early eighties It's the Superman. A lot of people identify with from a certain generation. And, um, I saw this movie originally in the theater when I was about 15, 16 years old when it came out. And I have just been drawn to this movie over the decades. So, you know, I, I would watch it every time it came on TV, then I would get the DVD, my, (laughs) Uh, wife and I, when we were dating, watched it and, and then we introduced our kids to it. And, and so why, you know, what is the reason, um, Paul, this movie is one that really hits on, I think a core need and longing of every human and, and every man. And in the longing I'm talking about is a longing to be fully known and accepted for who we are. We spend so much of our life in chasing success and wealth and promotions. And, you know, when we're younger, we're dating this person and this person and this person. And and we're putting all this pressure on other things, other people to come through for us and fully know us and fully accept us for who we are. And yet deep down, most men are fear, you know, are fearful that if somebody really knew me for who I am, they wouldn't love me. Yeah. So I don't feel fully known. And if somebody did fully know me, they wouldn't love me anyway. They would, they would be repelled by me, by my thoughts, by my longings or by, by my insecurities. And so this movie, I think goes into a deep level um, of 
that longing of a man to be fully known and fully loved and he'll risk everything. He will go, in fact, do the impossible. He will go backwards in time to be fully known and fully loved. And so at a heart level, this movie, I think, transcends whether it's a romance or whether it's time travel or all these other categories into saying, I would say to a man, this is a movie about being fully known, fully loved and risking everything for that to happen, for the for you to step into what feels impossible for that to happen. And you watch it with those eyes. And I think you find your own story in it as much as the story in this playing out on the screen. It's it's a unique one for your podcast, I know. And I cry <laughs> like a baby every time I watch it in multiple parts of it. Now I just hear the soundtrack and I start to cry. But um, yeah, it's it's one that I think is going to make for a fascinating conversation today. I don't normally make this disclaimer, but if you haven't seen the movie, you probably should go watch it. And it's a relatively short movie. It's about right at an hour and a half. I got it off Amazon Prime because this isn't a movie that you're going to be familiar with. We're going to be talking a lot about some of the deeper layers of it. And so I'm going to recommend that you guys see this movie because it'll help this conversation make a lot more sense. Yeah. Plus there's some really cool twists in it and it's better for you to experience the twists fresh watching the movie than hearing it dissected and then going into right. it. I think. Yeah. You even, you had even said Alan that you're like, yeah, don't listen to what people say. Don't do anything. Just watch the movie and then we'll talk about it. Yes. <laughs> because you didn't want to ruin the, the experience for me. Right. And, and, and honestly, it's a great movie for guys that are married, like watch it with your spouse, yeah. you know, or, or you could watch it with your kids, you know, if they're, I don't know if they're probably 11, 12 and up. Uh, it's, it's one of the, it's a movie that doesn't have any of those scenes you have to hide their eyes from or, or kind of fast forward past. Right. Like it's, you could watch the whole movie uh, together and I think, I think they would enjoy it, but really what I'd love to talk to you about today is how as a, as a man it impacted me and how I think it will other men and why it's so powerful. And why don't you, since you saw it today, Paul, <laughs> it was your first time to watch it. Like, why don't you describe kind of what this movie is to you? And then I want to go into a little bit about why I think it has a universal pull to men's hearts, but how would you describe it? As we, as you mentioned, it is not, the stereotypical guys movie. This is probably not a movie that's going to pop up on the top 100 list of, <laughs> of, of a movie every man should watch or whatever. Right. But watching it, you know, this movie was made in the, in 1980 and it, it's got that vibe to it, but it almost, as I was watching it, it felt like an older movie. It felt even like it was made back in the fifties and in the, what I told you was it felt like I was watching my fair lady. I watched a lot of those old musicals and stuff growing up. And the word that I used was it was it was a beautifully told, a beautifully shot story because you do have Christopher Reeve and you have Jane Seymour and you've got Christopher Christopher Plummer as the main people in the movie. And they're all fantastic actors. And Jane Seymour is a beautiful woman. And just that that quest for beauty and the story is unfolds slowly 
and there's some drama. And for me, it was what's happening, what's going on, how are they going to tie together and what's happening next? Which for me is a, is a good story. It, it, it created this curiosity of, wait, where is this going? You sort of had mm -hmm. this feeling in the beginning when the, the old woman shows up, you're like, okay, that's, that's the woman that he goes back in time with to meet. But how does he know her? Because it, it reminded me a little bit of um, Captain America. You know, when he disappears and then he's always stuck on the woman from, you know, the, the I think it was the 50s. It might have been World War One. I. I can't remember. But he was always right. stuck on Peggy, right. getting back to right. see Peggy. Right. And that's sort of what happens here where he goes back in time. And then, you know, just based on the beginning, it's not going to have that happy put a bow on it ending. But it's one of those that doesn't end with the happy ending you expect, but it doesn't end in the despair of he's back in 1980 and just has to learn to live with the loss. Yeah, it has a really, I, I thought an unexpected twist at the end. Even if you think you know where it's going, I, I think it will surprise, you know, and I hope if people are still listening at this point, I hope they're listening after they've seen the movie from here on. But um, to me, you know, it starts off with this guy. He's a very Christopher Reeves character, very successful playwright. Mm -hmm. uh, he's being kind of celebrated for a play that had just come out that he had created. And his name is Richard in the film, Richard Collier. And you see him in the theater setting and a lot of it's a party and then this very disruptive moment, this, this shadowy out of the shadows, this older woman comes up to him as you were just describing Paul and says, come back to me. And she hands him this pocket watch and everybody around him. There's just, just hush. They don't know what to make of it. He doesn't know what to make of it, but you can tell it, 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 it like very disruptive. It mm -hmm. rattles him. Well, and it was interesting because the whole party was grew hushed as she approached him. Yes. And so you, so like everybody senses something is going on. And then she says that and kind of puts the watch in his hand and, and then walks away. And we fast forward eight years later. And now this famous playwright, uh, we don't know fully what's happened in those eight years, but he's stuck. Yeah. He, this is back before the, you know, the, um, laptops and, <laughs> and, uh, all the modern ways we would, a screenplay writer would be doing a screenplay. So he's got a typewriter, right. Which gives it that kind of older classic feel to the movie. And for those guys who don't know what a typewriter <laughs> is, Google it, you'll, you'll figure out but it would be like an apple that, uh, had to have paper in it. You know, your laptop had to have paper in it and it weighed 500 pounds. Yeah. That would kind of be what a typewriter There's is. There's no spell check. <laughs> <laughs> no going back, no spell check. No delete. And so he keeps ripping pages out of his typewriter and throwing them at the wall. Like he's trying to get an idea. He's stuck. He's frozen. His livelihood is writing plays. And he's, you know, he has a convertible. He lives in a really nice high rise mm -hmm. penthouse apartment. So he's stuck and he's going, he decides I've got to get out of here. And so he goes down the elevator and about that time as his agent or manager meets him, and basically the conversation is you got to get this thing done. You've, you've got to turn in, you know, your time 
is past due for this and we've got to have it. And so Richard goes off in his convertible just to get away, to find some place to write, to be creative, to think, to, to, to get through this stuck point. And while he's driving, he passes the grand hotel, which is a real hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, that's this, like this stunningly beautiful. It's a place that a good friend of mine, uh, wild at heart, her, her and her husband just got married and they went to spend their honeymoon there oh, Nice on this Island. And, mm-hmm. and this hotel was there on the Island, but, um, the point of it is he drives by it and then he pauses, he reverses the car and goes in on an impulse seemingly to check into this hotel. And he is going to try to come up with his idea for the story. And that's where, while he's waiting for dinner that night and he goes, wanders into this hall of history and he sees the hotel's history, but it's almost like this person is staring at him, you know, Mm -hmm. like he starts to feel like as he's looking at other things, and he turns around and it's a really large painting or photograph rather of Elise McKenna, who is an actress who was like a resident at the hotel back in time, like way back in time. Cause this is happening in 1980 and she was there. I think it was, was it 1912, 1912. Yeah. And so, but it's a stunning picture of her. And so he just gets captured by her beauty and the story and he's a playwright and she was an actress in the plays in the hotel. And so that starts this really, that's when the movie picks up traction because now he's trying to find out everything he can about her. So he, you know, he starts doing research and he starts trying to figure out, you know, uh, where was this place, the place happened and he talks to the old guy who was there, who's kind of a, a caretaker of the hotel grounds, but his name's Arthur. And he was there at this time. This was all happening as a boy, like, you know, six or seven. And so it really starts the journey of the protagonist into, I, I think I'm falling in love with this woman. I'm in, infatuated with what happened then. And I'm not sure he totally connects it back to yet at this point, the woman who had come in at the beginning of the movie, the old woman who said, come back to me, but those pieces are starting to come together. And then that starts his relentless pursuit to go back and, and actually see her in that time period. And time travel is, was nothing new in movies. You know, you've got the time machine, you've got, uh, back to the future even. But the interesting thing is, as he's digging in and, and again, there's no Google, there's no internet, there's no computers. And so he's at the library looking up these old magazines and these reading the stories about uh, biographies. And it seems at, at least days where he's doing that. And then he ends up, right. he finds where she went and she, she died. After she delivered the watch, she went home, put on the, the, the music, the Rachmaninoff. I remember when I went to college, I didn't know very much about uh, the classical music or anything. So I, I went to this buddy and I was like, hey, you know, I'm taking a girl out to some symphony or something. And I was like, I think they're playing Rachmaninoff. 
He's like, what? <laughs> He's like, no, dude, that's Rachmaninoff. I was like, I don't know. It's okay. I just, you know, grew up in phonics. So <laughs> that's awesome. But the music was the music again was beautiful because it's it's somewhat familiar. Like even throughout it, it's like, where have I heard this before? Where have I heard this before? And then when they said it and, and he shows up at this place where she had passed, where she had died, spent her last days. And the, the friend there was like, well, yeah, she, she loved, she read this book over and over. And it was this book by his philosophy teacher who had written a book on time travel, which was basically his theory was if you want it hard enough, you can make it happen. Yeah. You have to go back into a place that is still somewhat timeless from how it was at that time. So like, you know, an old building, mm-hmm. Uh, get all the modern furniture out of it and all of the sounds of the modern time around it. But, but he was like it, Christopher Reeve, the actor, you know, uh, Richard in the movie kept asking this professors, have you done it? Did you do it? And he was like, I I think so. I think for a minute I did, but it was, you know, it all happened really fast. And here's what I would do if I had to do it again, Mm -hmm. you know, which this is an, at this time, like a guy in his seventies or so. And he was like, but I, I would dress in the time period, you know, I would make sure that I didn't have distracting sounds around me on and on. And so Richard does that in this hotel where his love, you know, was at that time period. And he, even before he tries to go back, he like goes up into the attic and digs around. And a cool part, Paul, I thought was he finds in the you know hotel's history, like up in the cobwebs of the the storage area in the attic of this hotel, he finds the guest book, and he goes back to the day that he's trying to travel to, and he sees his name in his handwriting in his signature and the room number that he stayed in. Yeah, and so now he knows. Wow, I like it. It did happen. I somehow I was there at this time. This is my signature in 1912, Yeah, you know? And so it had to happen. Now I've got to figure out and just get there. So I thought that was a milestone moment for him as a character. The biggest thing, I think when we, when we're facing challenges or, fa- you know, you've got this guy and it's, you know, 1980, he's saying time travel is possible for me to go back and meet this woman that I am infatuated with meet this, this dream of his. And there's a, there's a point where you have to believe that it can actually happen mm-hmm. because before that he had tried really hard. He had been, you know, set up all this stuff and tried really hard was what I, you take away from it. Like I, I wrote in our email, he, he sweats a lot <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I loved when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just, because he's trying so hard, he's so desperate to meet this woman as he's preparing and, you know, as, as guys will do, they'll sort of prep what they're going to say. And he says, hello, Miss McKenna, you don't know me, but you're going to. You know, the, the purpose was not this conquest, this sexual conquest of achieving. Yes. I won her body basically, but right. it was, and he even says that when he meets her, I know everything about you because he had done so much research. And he wanted, he wanted her to know him as much as deeply as, as intimately as he knew her. Yes. Cause you get the feeling 
in the modern world, I mean, he was, well, he was single. He lived by himself. He was successful. He had all the trappings of success, but he didn't seem to have any relationship. Right. Um, the movie never addresses any past relationship. He never addresses that. And so, yeah, that longing to be known in a really deep way, a soulmate kind of way. And so when he kind of skipping forward, when he does end up getting into the past, you know, which is this traumatic kind of event that he sweats a lot more during and, <laughs> <laughs> and he wakes up, but he looks really good sweating. Like, Oh, you know, Christopher Reeve, when Christopher, he's sweating, yeah. <laughs> he, looks, he looks really good. When you or I sweat, it's, our wives are like, dude, you, you're like, go shower, go dry off somewhere, <laughs> but you know, take a shower, but he uh, pulls it off really well. And, and so he gets there in time, back in time, somewhere in time, back in time, and when he finally finds, then he can't find her though. So it's not as easy as like, he's there now, but everywhere he goes to find her, nobody knows where she is. Nobody wants to talk to him. No, you know, and he finally is told she's out by the lake, by the water. And so he goes out there and the music swells. And uh, it's this really cool moment where as he approaches her, she looks at him and she says, is it you? And you're like, Whoa, what? Like, you know, he was going, he knew who she was, but what, how does she already associate him with somebody pivotal in her life? And the movie, I think it explains it away in one sense where later that she says, well, my manager told me that there would be a man that comes into my life that was going to be dangerous, but, and I need to look out for him. But she didn't, it wasn't said in that context of fear. It was said in a context of intrigue, I think from her. And so it, it leaves you as a viewer wondering, maybe she had an inkling or knew a little more of somebody coming that she'd been waiting for. Right. The sense of, are you the one I've been looking for? Right. Right. And so that starts, you know, their intrigue, the, the romance, the, the questions, um, and the movie really is in the sweet spot of the, you know, that's what you've been building up to in watching it is they're together. Now what's going to happen. And, and they have this man, she has a manager who is really determined not to let this romance happen partially because he does, he's been grooming her from young adulthood, young, you know, like teenage years kind of for this, for this career. And she's really popular and, and he's her manager and he doesn't want anybody derailing, distracting that. And so he's not, he, you know, at one point, Christopher Reeve is like the Richard Collier character is like, you just want her for yourself, you know? And, mm -hmm. and the manager basically goes, do you think my highest motive is love? Like, or romance? Like basically, right. are you kidding me? Like <laughs> I, I thought I have a higher motive. I want to see her realize her potential because she's going to change the world, mm. you know, through her acting. Like I, I wouldn't throw that away for a romance with her. This is bigger than that. And so he's relentlessly driven to keep her any suitor or any person away from her so that he can help her see that goal. So there becomes this triangle of tension mm -hmm. 
where every time Christopher Reeve is trying to get closer to her, and I'm just using the name we know him by today, <laughs> but every time he's trying to get closer, uh, the manager is sabotaging that every way he can. And Elise McKenna is being drawn to him, but still doesn't quite understand why or who he is or, or where he is. So that creates kind of the tension for the, the romance, you know, it's like now he's there, but their hard part really begins. Mm. The harder part, it turns out, wasn't traveling through time as much as now trying to win her over and understand the time he's in. Like he finds out the suit that he bought, um, <laughs> you know, he, he buys a suit that he thinks is from 1912. But when he gets into that time period, he's somebody tells him, you know, basically the suit he's wearing is a decade out of style. Right. And, so, and it's the only suit he has. It's the only clothes he has while he's there. And he realizes, you know, oh, I thought I was dressed for the period, but I'm actually 10 years out of style. And, and th these are my, you know, these are, this is all I have. Like, this is what I've got to wear to try to win her over. So it's not with his uh, fashion sense that she is being drawn to him, but really it's his relentless pursuit of her heart. He cuts in on a dance and right. ends up getting escorted out. He says, when can I see you? When can I talk to you? You know, he, he keeps pursuing her going places where, as our manager says, you're not really welcome. It was interesting, and I'll, I'll play a clip here from that conversation with the manager, because at lunch or breakfast or some meal, they're talking, and he and the manager, who's, who's Christopher Plummer, I can't remember his name right now. Robinson. So it's Robinson sits down, and he, and he says, Collier, what are you up to? Where are you from, Collier? Chicago. Where are you from, sir? I'm given to understand that... You're a playwright. You understand correctly. No doubt you dream of seeing Miss McKenna in one of your opera. That's plural for opus. I presume you've written more than one. Hmm. And seen them produced. Really? Mm -hmm. Not entirely unacquainted with the achievements of the American stage in the past decade. Perhaps I've seen one? No, I doubt it. I also doubt very much that I shall ever see one graced by Miss McKenna. You don't really believe that's why I'm here, do you? Why are you here? Is it money? I don't think you really believe that either. There is a law, Collier. I warn you, I will not hesitate to make a veil of it. Oh, yes? On what charge? The matter's concluded, sir. No. Oh, yes, you may depend on it. It's such an interesting scene because there's, I don't know, there's two questions that are unanswered. When Collier asks Robinson, he's like, well, you know, I'm from Chicago. Where are you from? And he just blows him off. But then Robinson asks him, well, why are you here? Right. Right. And to me, that was pivotal because in any movie, when you if you can get to the motive of the protagonist like that, that is a motive question that drives every protagonist as a viewer. We're trying to figure out what is their motive? Why are they here? What, what do you do? What is your goal? Why are you here? What, what are you trying to accomplish? And it was really, I think it was asked by the antagonist, but I found it a very telling question because in that moment, Collier saying, 
do you think I'm really here just to have her in a play? Like, you know, but he can't really explain how we got here. He can't explain why the manager can't see any of his earlier works or can't find them. And so he's being a little coy, even while he's right. trying to be honest and the manager's being coy in that, you know, like the first time I saw the movie, I thought, has the manager time traveled in some way as well? Because he's not saying where he's from. <laughs> I was curious about that. And he says, that there's a man that's going to come into your you know, future that's going to be dangerous. So you kind of go, we don't really know his history, but that's left a little open too. And so that scene though, to me was where, and you know, the woman is not involved in that scene. So it's just the two men mm-hmm. talking and it's really interesting on both. It exposes both of their motives in some way for why they're trying to, they're trying to do what they want to do in terms of a lease. And it's interesting because he says, Oh, you must want her to be a part of your play. Oh, you're in it for money, which as we'll come to find out is sort of his driving motivation is Robinson's motivation because it is about making her a star. Right. And you don't really become a star without making money. And there was a sense that that was what mattered to him. But he he would wrap it enough that you couldn't really see it very clearly. Well, he certainly the manager certainly was operating in a realm of control. Yeah, he wanted to control every detail of her life, who she could see, where they would travel the dress of the second act. <laughs> right. Right. And one, and one of the really cool moments after the dance, the first time they had that dance and you were mentioning, he gets escorted out and ripped away from her kind of, mm-hmm. uh, by the manager telling the hotel security, get him out of here. She invites him later to watch her. You know, I've got a ticket for you to watch my play. So he's in the audience as a playwright and as someone who's head over heels in love watching her in her glory as an actress. And we've already seen her manager is super controlling, super tight on how things go. And so at the end of this opening scene, Elise breaks character, goes off script. She is being married off to someone she doesn't want to marry. He was an old fat banker. And basically the only thing she appreciates is his absence. So then her monologue goes off and she's talking about the man of her dreams. The sort of man each woman dreams of in the deepest and most secret reaches of her heart. I can almost see him now before me. What would I say to him? If he were really here, forgive me. I've never known this feeling. I've lived without it all my life. Is it any wonder then I failed to recognize you? You brought it to me for the first time. Is there any way that can tell you how my life has changed. Any way at all to let you know what sweetness you have given me. There is so much to say. 
find the words. Except for these. I love you. And then, and then right after that, her next line, she kind of shifts back in character and says, such would I say to him if he were really here. And then she, you know, everybody backstage is breathing a sigh of relief that thank goodness she's getting back into the landing for the end of scene one. Yeah. And the, the, the woman on stage with her is looking you know, kind of dumbfounded while she's going off script and the, and the manager backstage is furious. Um, so we're seeing all that as the viewer, right? But, but she's saying that and locking eyes with Richard in the audience and he knows it's for him. And, I, you know, one thing about this, Paul, that strikes me is what man listening would not want a woman to say that about him? Yeah. It's the kind of thing you would whether you're dating or whether you're married or been married 20 years or newlyweds, like that's the kind of thing that you want a woman to feel about your presence and about who you are. So, you know, and and the Richard Collier character, like we said, wanted to be known more than anything else. And here's this beautiful woman who he's traveled an impossible journey to get to. Who's now saying, you know, from that first word she says of, is it you, you know, to now saying, forgive me for not realizing that it was you at first. And, and basically, you know, how can I express what you've done in my life? And this has only been a matter of a couple of days, right? (laughs) Um, You know, so that to me was a very powerful scene. And then one of the coolest parts after that, so the play ends and he's trying to get to her and he can't get to her. And when he finally finds her, she's posing for a portrait and looks distracted and, and not into it at all. And they're trying to get her to smile. And, she, you know, back then, it's not like the iPhone that you take 7000 photos in one <laughs> second. Like this is like, you know, the big flash bulb and they're trying to get her ready and she's not into it. And then he turns the corner and they lock eyes and she smiles and they take the picture. And that's the photo he sees in the hall of her. So it's like the the very image of her that draws him to her when it was taken was her looking at him. Right. And so it's this really cool moment, but again, like there it's intensifying. He feels known. They are drawn to each other. And it's this, this man experiencing being known in beauty and adventure all in the context of this surreal happening. Right. Yeah. The whole concept of this, like the, the, the philosophy professor says you hypnotize yourself to go back in time. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And he does. And it actually happens. And I think there's a lot of times where, God asks us to do some crazy stuff. Right. You just see it throughout the Bible. Noah, build an ark. It's going to rain. What's rain? What's an ark? You know, that thing. And, and Damon, go wash in the Jordan River seven times, not just once, but seven. And Abraham, pick up everything and leave. Mary and Martha, roll the stone away. And those are crazy things. 
and we get asked to do crazy. And in this scenario, Richard is asked to do a crazy thing. He, you don't see him explaining it to anybody. Yeah. I'm going to try to go back in time to meet this girl in a picture that I read about who's captured my heart and my imagination. But he's like the, in the parable, like the man who finds a field of great value and he'll sell everything to, you know, to get it and to, to, to own it and to be, and to have it. And so, I mean, you sense that with the Richard Collier character is this is my one thing, my one goal above anything else. It is, I'll get rid of anything. I'll sell anything. My whole life in the current time of 1980 gone, people can wonder where I am, you know, but I'm going back if I can to, I'm not going to let even time get in the way. I'm not even going to let the way time flows get in the way. I'm that relentless. And and I think as men, we have to ask ourselves, like, where are we that relentless? Where do we have that much passion that, that we even say, God, with you, the impossible is possible. And we hear that verse so many times, you know, that thought so many times it's like, yeah, God makes the impossible possible. Well, how, how much impossible do you think he can make possible? Do you think he can change things in the time stream? Do you think uh, that he can still uh, part the Red Sea, the waters? Do you think he can walk on water? Do you think he can tell a storm to stop? Do you think that, you know, on the cross, somehow what Jesus does transcends past, present, future? Like right. the sacrifice is for people that lived all the way before, all the way after, somehow the, you know, Jesus, we read in John 1, 1 was the word and and the word through him and in him, all things were made. So Jesus didn't start his life as a baby in Bethlehem. Like Jesus was the eternal triune, you know, father, son, spirit. And so we read in John 1, 1, creation happens in and through Jesus and by him, all things are held together. If you, if you're following Jesus, you're not just following him in an ordinary life, right? Like you, you're following the one who can change rules of nature, of physics, of the universe. He created those rules and he can change them and act outside of them. And so to me, this movie, yes, it's a fantasy, you know, (laughs) yes, it's a story, but how much do we believe and how much will we risk and pursue the impossible with God in our own story? Well, and the other part that we talked about a little bit that you you hinted at was this whole idea of Jesus stepping out of time, being above time, and stepping right. into our existence. And there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of people out there who actually say Jesus is a, is a scary man. Jesus is not someone to listen to, or God is not someone to listen to, or... You know, he's, he's judge, jury, and executioner. He knows everything you've ever done. And that's a terrifying thing for some of us. Mm. But what he does, and he's frequently referred to as the groom, the bridegroom. Yes. Who comes to redeem his bride. And I saw that, especially in that speech where he's, she's like, I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't know the sweetness of it. I didn't know how it would change my life because when that transformational, when that interaction, 
when that relationship with Jesus happens and you feel both truly known and you begin to know Jesus, that's what happens to you. You have that transformational moment where you're like, I never knew life could be like this. Yes. Again, looking at the story is where the part, the part we're in now, he's a playwright, Richard Collier's a, a famed playwright, but in a sense, he decides I want to live a better story than I'm writing. Yeah. Like I'm, we don't know what his plays were about, but, but they were very famous in the movie and he was famous. And so he goes from writing really incredible stories to living mm. an even more fantastical story. And, and so you know, for the guys listening, I would, I'm going to refer to that as story one, story two, story one, the story you can somewhat control the story that plays by the rules of this world. Um, the story that you can kind of make happen on your own through your own strength or your own wisdom or through your own, make it happen. Productivity story two, the story that's only possible with God. And so we get to choose like Richard Collier, Mm. what story do we want to live in? And an example, Paul, that I wanted to share with you that you you haven't heard this yet, (laughs) but, but my voice went out. Uh, I'm a speaker. I do a lot of events and gatherings and I overuse my voice, fried my vocal cords back in February. Mm -hmm. So we're talking now, I don't know when this will air, but it's early July when we're talking this happened in February. And so February until June, I, my voice was hoarse. It sounded about 40% strength and I couldn't, I, I couldn't do any talk any deeper, any stronger. And I saw a throat specialist and he said, yeah, Alan, you, you've got a nodule on your vocal cords. And so let's set a surgery to cut that nodule out. This happens with a lot of speakers, songwriters, singers, performers, um, pastors, And once we get rid of it, it, your voice will come back because your vocal cords can close. But until then, that nodule keeps them from closing and it's impossible to get your voice back until we do surgery. So we set surgery for June 9th. And you can imagine I'm ready for it because, I mean, I speak on podcasts. I speak at events. I I need my everybody needs their voice. But I use my voice daily like an instrument for what I do. So it's June 5th, 6th, coming up on June 9th, and I'm praying, and I sense God say, Alan, which story do you want? I'm going to offer you two stories, story one, story two. Story one, go to the doctor. He's a trained specialist in throat surgery. Let him remove the vocal nodule and see what happens. That's story one. I heal people through doctors it didn't feel like God was saying, don't do it. It was like, do you want that? Or do you want story two? And I said, well, what's story two? And he said, story <laughs> so two. Like, Let's make a deal or something. <laughs> right. right. It felt like a fork in the road. Like there are these yeah. two paths and story two. All I'm telling you is you can walk into this with me in mystery and in faith. And there was no guarantee about my voice in either one. Like in neither did I sense Mm. God saying, and your voice will be back full strength. I just sensed him saying, which story do you want? Which story stirs your heart the most? And I started thinking about that, Paul. I was like, you know, I want the story. I want story two, 
Because if I were watching a Netflix, you know, reality <laughs> show, I would want to watch the person that chose story two, not story one. If, if I go to the doctor and he does the procedure and I don't talk for a week and then my voice is back, that's awesome. And it's my heart kind of flatlined with that story two. I would never know unless I said yes to it. Yeah. I would, I just wouldn't know whatever God was up to. And so I chose story two. And just to interject, you, you made a comment that really stuck with me as we were exchanging emails during this. You said, which story fills me with peace and passion? Yes. I love that. Right. But which one would fill me with peace and passion? And it was a no brainer. And the thing is, I didn't go into it with this expectation from God of, okay, if I cancel this surgery, which takes like six weeks to schedule. So, I mean, if, if, if I cancel this and it takes, my voice doesn't get better, then I'm at least into the fall with this vocal issue. And I had a conference I was leading a week and a half after the surgery. And I was, so there was risk involved. But I sensed God's invitation to go with where my heart felt the most passion. And I went with story two and the doctor said, Hey, Alan, that's fine. But this is this, what I was facing. The doctor goes, Oh, Hey, listen, that's fine. It's not like it's cancer. There's no, (laughs) there's no intensity to get it done urgency right now. But when you get tired of your voice, not working, eventually this is, I'm the, this is the option is surgery. (laughs) So when you get tired of it not working, let me know. We'll reschedule it and we'll get it done then. And I let it go. Uh, I canceled the appointment, the surgery appointment. And all I knew in that moment was, God, I trust you. And I'm going for it. I'm going for the road less traveled option two. And within three to four days, my voice is full strength. I didn't change anything. They, they, you know, on the front end, they said, Hey, don't, if you really want it back, it's not going to heal it, but don't drink coffee. Don't drink salsa. Don't do hot stuff, spicy stuff. Don't do alcohol. Don't do caffeine. That'll just make it worse. And those are three of my favorite food groups, <laughs> uh, caffeine, alcohol, and salsa. <laughs> so I, I did, I didn't stop doing any of those things. And, uh, it was, it really is miraculous. Like my vocal cords, I don't know what's going on inside before the surgery. I had a scope and I could see on the camera, the nodule, and I saw it twice in two appointments. My wife has asked me, do you want to go back and see if it's gone? And I'm like, no, not really. I, whether God took away the nodule or whether he's supernaturally working around it, I'm great either way. And if he had not given my voice back, I still would have been glad I chose story two. Mm-hmm. And, and some friends were like, but Alan, God can heal through doctors. I'm like, that's not my issue. I don't have a trouble right. believing that. I'm not wrestling with that. I'm not moving against something. I'm moving towards something. God has said, there's this path you'll only get to see if you choose story two. And I wanted to choose story two. And I didn't go into it with the pressure on God from me that if you don't come through, I I'm disappointed or I'm angry or I lose faith. The only guarantee was God said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you in either story, but story two is going to blow your mind. And I went with that story. And now it's a really good story to tell people 
in that it, it is miraculous. Like according to the doctor, this can't happen and it won't happen. It's really cool. It's amazing. And I say that because like Richard Collier in the story, basically what I was choosing was by worldly terms, the impossible. Like I'm choosing a path where I need my voice. I'm going to be doing a lot of speaking in a week and a half. I'm leading a conference or a gathering and the more sure way things would work would be to have the surgery and just be done. But yet God had a bigger story and and all of us have a story, whether our vocal cords have a nodule, most don't have that, but we're all trying to find our voice and we're all trying to find our meaning, our, our gifting, our place in the world, what we can speak life into. And I just insert my story here to take the movie story and make it a little more relevant to everybody, at least the way it was for me, which was what, where am I going to step into the impossible with God? Um, for me, it was my voice recently, a high stakes by the doctor's terms, impossible choice, which was don't do surgery and just expect it to get better. And so I think what I see in Richard in the movie is a man who says, I'll go the distance. I'll step fully. I'll risk. I'll go into it. And in the movie, there's no mention of God. There's no reference of, of spiritual longings or faith. So that layer I'm reading into the movie, right? Like we do in a lot of movies, we, we see with eyes, maybe the writer and director and actor didn't even have when they were filming it. But to me, it's a great example and a great question we can ask ourselves and others of where are you looking to God for the impossible to be made possible in your life? And will you look foolish to the world in order to walk that, that on water with God? Will you risk whatever, if you know God's inviting you into it, even though it seems like the equivalent of going back in time, you know, uh, to find this woman or of trusting your voice to just get better after four months of it staying mm. in really not good shape and not changing at all. It just gets stuck in about 40%. And, and literally within two to three days of declining the surgery, it's a hundred percent back and has stayed back. I, I did that teaching. That conference was four to five hours of teaching every day. And that's pretty brutal on even healthy vocal cords. And I'm just days out of not doing surgery and my voice returning. And I'm like, what if this, what if somehow it's back, but I blow it again, you know, I blow it out again from overuse. And I just sense, you know, God smiling, like Alan, I've given it back. <laughs> Enjoy it. Use it. It's here now. Use it for the kingdom. And so we can get back to the movie, but, but I just had to share a recent example of something in my life that felt for all intents as miraculous as traveling back in time. That's awesome. We, like you mentioned, I knew you hadn't done the surgery, but I didn't know the outcome and the, the response. And the interesting thing, as you were talking as the movie, as we kind of go get to the closure of the movie, uh, Richard thinks Elise is left and then they find each other and then they consummate their relationship as they do in these sorts of things. 
and they're sitting there the next morning and it's like five o'clock in the morning and they're talking and she's wanting to get rid of his outdated suit and he's going around, but it's got all these great pockets with coins and he pulls out a coin and it's got the 1979 date on it. And it pulls him back because his, his mind remembers that he's not supposed to be there. And he wakes up sweating, (laughs) (laughs) sweating in, in 1980 and he's lost and he's, he's despondent and he can't get back no matter how much he sweats or how hard he tries. Because I think even when we go back in time, even when we believe God, there are times that, like you mentioned, there's no guarantee of what the outcome will be. I told my brother, the bad thing about risk is the outcome isn't assured. <laughs> right, right. And to, for him, he he gets back and he loses, really loses the will to live, and he ends up dying. Right. But the story's not over. And I think that's where where we tend to get stuck. And, and I mentioned earlier, it's not the traditional happy ending, but it's not the Manchester by the sea where it's super depressing either because he goes back and he, he loses his dream, but then yes. he gets it back at the end. Yes. Right. Because win or lose, voice back or no voice back, time travel or no time travel, God's still in it. Yes. Yes. And I think what we have to know, and, and again, like it's, it's a movie um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's imperfect as any movie is to, to really paint the true journey. I think we're on with God, but in that movie, we see a man who was willing to risk it all. And there was a cost by the very end of the movie. He has everything he hoped for. You know, by the very end, the last scene, but in human earthly terms, there was, there was a lot of risk, a lot of cost, and, and a lot of sorrow and grieving because he saw in partial what he would see in full later. But now let's go to, if we can, like to a meta level of what I, what I was telling you at the beginning of the podcast, I just saw for the first time when I watched this movie on father's day a few weeks ago. And that was that you can take this whole movie and look at it in a way that not necessarily you're meant to, you know, that the producer or the screenplay writer didn't intend, but that holds up, which is a deeper level of here's a playwright who is desperate to come up with a new play to, to, to make something happen he is stuck. He travels to the hotel. I'm tracking with the movie right now all the way. He gets in a hotel room. He's waiting for dinner. He goes into the hall of history. He sees this image of this beautiful woman. He finds out, wow, Elise McKenna actually was the actress in this hotel who did the plays and was world renowned. And then if you stop there and watch what happens from there as what if you looked at it from the perspective of this playwright then goes to his hotel room. He's got this idea and he writes about a man so fascinated by this woman that in the play that he's writing now in his hotel room, he's not traveling back in time. He's writing a play about a woman and a man who meet through time, a man going back in time and this great love. And it could be one of his greatest plays ever 
Mm-hmm. And he went to the hotel in search of an idea. Now he's got the idea. Now he's in this hotel room, probably still sweating, but sweating <laughs> at the computer, you know, at his laptop or his, or his typewriter. And what pulls him out of it is all of a sudden the distraction of the, the penny represents money. It represents income. It represents the pressure to come through to get this done, to get his royalty or his advance or his paycheck. And it pulls him out of the story in a beautiful moment and he can't get back into it and he can't go back. He can't figure out how to finish this story. He can't, he's lost the thread. And so he's in despair. He can't get back. He can't get the idea back. He can't finish writing it. He's lost it. And ultimately he dies in the hotel room of a broken heart for what he's been trying to pursue his dream, his calling, his livelihood. He realizes I've wrestled this thing and it's had got the best of me. It's, it's done me and I can't finish it. And I, and I don't want to go back. And so I'm done. And so Paul, I bring that up because I think on a deeper level on our soul, this movie isn't just about a man pursuing a beauty at any cost relentlessly. It's about a man who's a playwright I mean, think about in the movie, he's a playwright. He goes to this random hotel. He sees a woman who was an actress in plays. He was going there to have a breakthrough idea. And so you can read it on a level of what if that was his story of a playwright going here, getting this idea, falling in love with the idea and trying to make it come through because he gets a taste of it. He starts on it. It's working. It's working. It's working. It's working. And then it all falls apart and the pressure of money and the pressure of the reality of 1980. Um, but the pressure of the moment it pulls him back and he, and, and he can't, he, he gets crushed. He implodes. And so why is that a big deal? Well, as men, we are pursuing our calling and what makes us come alive outside of the beauty, the woman, we all have this calling and this desire to come through in our, in our career yeah. Where do we put our strength? What do we invest our days in? And so I think the movie on a meta level works at that level that says to men, what's it like when you get stuck and you finally have breakthrough and then, and then those dreams crash in on you. And, and in that sense, uh, it's a tragedy tell in that sense, because he gets a taste of it. He he's been famous. He's stuck. He thinks he's coming out of it. The plane's rising, rising, rising. And then at some point it crashes and implodes through the pressure. And so I think the movie works on both levels. And the second level may be one I'm reading into it that that nobody else who created it did. But nonetheless, I think it's a tell that works on dual levels of how do we pursue the miraculous in our search for beauty and what do we risk for love and to be known, to be known at a heart level. And from a calling level, what will we do to try to hold on to our, our passion and our reason for existence? And what happens when that doesn't come together like we wanted in the end, you know, like look at professional athletes who are famous, renowned millionaires many times over and they get to the end of their career 
and they don't know what to do. And, and a lot of famous athletes commit suicide or they just get their life goes in a downward spiral because they've tasted it and they can't continue it. And so this movie for the guys watching it, I think it's going to speak to your heart on multiple levels. If you let it uh, on the calling of your life and your talent and your passion and on your pursuit of beauty and to be known. And I think being known as the core longing of everybody's heart, when you get down to it, I long to be known and we'll go to any extreme to do that. Some very unhealthy, some healthy. And so I think those two things cause this movie to have a powerful impact when people see it with those eyes. So Alan, thanks again for being on here. And uh, I, want, I don't want to say taking us on this, this uh, giving us a different flavor this time, because I think we need to have an expanded palette when it comes to the the movies we watch. They can't all be, uh, you know, the Rambos and the the Saving Private Ryan's or uh, Top Gun. As as fun as those are, just as God is multifaceted, we are multifaceted, and we need to develop that and see that and experience. And as you mentioned, it's great to experience that with your wife or your girlfriend or the kids. Because it introduces them, like you mentioned, the the impact and the importance of how belonging and being known are such core desires and the lengths that we'll go frequently unhealthily to achieve that. As you're saying that, what's resonating with me is as men, we can stereotype ourselves in ways sometimes we think the world is, and it is. Sometimes we think you know, we get stereotyped in movies and, 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 uh, you know, the dad is, tends to be the dumb doofus dad in most Hollywood movies. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I've talked to some producers with major film companies in different settings, creative settings. And they've said, no, Alan, you're right. Not that you're right in just seeing it, but you're, you're even more right that it's purposeful, more right than you may know, because we've discovered the female is the voice in the house that sets what the TV shows are that children watch. And so we're not going to ever put down the woman or make her look like the butt of the joke or kind of the immature one. But many women have been through divorces. They're mad at their, their ex, you know, husband, they uh, feel like the husband tries to set all the rules and they want authority as well. And so anytime in a movie, that we can make one parent the bumbling idiot or the one who doesn't get it. We're going to make that the man. And in a lot of Disney movies, the dad dies before the first act is over, you know, like in the animated movies I'm talking about, like you think about the animated movies where the, there is no father figure period. Or you think of like good luck, Charlie, which was this Disney show for a long time, the sitcom and the dad was like the immature bumbling he was afraid of his wife. He, he was like more one of the kids. Everybody loves Raymond was one of the ones I think of as with the bumbling husband. Yes. And so we have to be sure, I mean, the world and Hollywood can stereotype us as men, but we have to make sure we're not stereotyping ourselves with this weird macho sense of, Oh, I only watch guy movies. You know, I, I like explosions and I like, you know, guns and I really want, the, you know, great. All those things are fine. I'm not dissing those movies, but I'm saying 
Also, like you said, expand your palate, watch a movie that tries to get into the deeper levels of your heart of being known and wooed and, and what's a passion that will cause you to risk everything in, in, a, in an emotive way, not just in a, you know, charge the battlefield way. I mean, that we need men to charge the battlefield, but, you know, charging the battlefield, you have to be brave for a couple of minutes in that moment, but trying to be known, you have to be brave your entire life. And, and so both are needed, but these are the kind of movies that we talked about today that I think does cause you to maybe go, wow, this wasn't in my queue to watch, but now that I have watched it or will watch it, how will that change me as a man in a really good heart level way? So this has been the men at the movies podcast with Paul McDonald and Alan Arnold. Alan, thanks so much for being here and, and talking about this, this movie that, as you mentioned, has been a part of your life for, for decades. Thanks, Paul. Another really great conversation. And um, I hope we find time for Ratatouille in the future. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. I hope you join us next time here on the Men at the Movies podcast. Something inside has been awakened. I can no longer be who I was before. But if I am no longer who I was, who am I to be? Who am I to be?